The reading of scripture from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from this pasture, from, the, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. For violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquities, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We apologize for the technical difficulties. We will enter into Jeff's sermon about three minutes into his preaching. He says, through a great leader. Picking up halfway through verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Again, this is a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, here's how I'm going to fulfill these promises. From your lineage, one of your descendants, he will be the one that I will establish this great 
kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule. He's the one I'm going to do it through, and it's going to be forever. And what's more, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So intimate will be the relationship between this son of David and God. This is how I'm going to redeem the world. I'm going to bless you through this king, and through this king, your name will be great, and the world will be blessed. This is God's plan for redemption through a great leader, a a leader so great and so close to God that he will be considered a son of God. Now, there's a lot in this passage that kind of looks backwards. He says, it's not going to be like the time of the judges, and, and I've been with you. And so for us to understand what's even being said here, we need to move backward, to kind of go back to where we last left off last week. If you have been with us, you'll know that for the last seven weeks or so, we have been working through paying attention to what the story is that holds the Bible together, the story of God redeeming this world. And last week, we were at kind of a, a fairly good point. After Israel had made a lot of mistakes, God finally brought his people into the promised land. And in the, in the book of Joshua, we see them taking hold of the things promised. There's, there's victories. They are able to kind of finally get into their land, and they seem to be focused on God and united. And everything looks good in Joshua. But then, if you just turn the pages to Judges, we see things stalling out even maybe moving backwards. Each tribe kind of struggles to to remove the remaining enemies. And so there's these pockets of enemy cities in every tribe throughout the land of Canaan. And what's more, we see these people seem to have lost their way. As they're near these, these foreign religions, they start adopting foreign gods. They're idolatrous. They're divided. And they're failing. And from time to time, God will give them a leader because that's what they need. But the leader will only be there for a short period of time. And oftentimes, he's only leading a small percentage of the people of Israel. And so over time, you see Israel falling further and further and further apart. So by the time you get to the book of Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, you see things in utter disarray. The leadership is corrupt. The priesthood is corrupt. And one of the clearest examples is is one of the stories that starts 1 Samuel out, where the people of Israel are fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are one of the main enemies that are still left in Canaan. And they get routed. They get destroyed. And so they ask a question, and it's a good question. Why has God done this to us? And it's a question that that should have brought self-reflection should have helped him to realize maybe it's because we haven't been faithful to God. Maybe it's because we've been worshiping idols. But no, that's not what they decide. They decide that they just need to somehow fix this to force God to go with them. And so they take the ark. Remember, the ark is this special gold box that represents God's throne, God's presence. And they decide we're going to put the ark in front, and that way we can be sure that God leads us. Now, this is not a good way of relating to God, if you're wondering. This is not treating God like king and saying, God, what will you have us do? And then following, it's treating God like magic and saying, God, this is what we're going to do. Now give us power. And so what happens? They come up to the Philistines and they are excited and there's a roar and the Philistines are worried because there's all this excitement and they think God is fighting for them and the Philistines utterly decimate them. The ark is captured. It goes into foreign lands. The people are utterly discouraged There is hopelessness. 
And really, we could say this story is in three chapters, and here is the first chapter that we've just heard. The chapter that we hear in, in Judges in the first part of Samuel is God's people need a leader. They are hopeless without leadership. They have lost their way. And so we turn to maybe what we could call chapter two, and that is a leader like all other leaders. Because even God's people recognize that something is wrong. They, they realize that they need someone to lead them. And so they come to Samuel. But what they ask isn't quite right. They basically say, look, we've looked around and we see all these other nations have a king. And we want a, a king like one of them because they seem to be knowing what they're doing. Now, if you think about it, this is not the right way of thinking. Their whole identity as God's people is that they have prospered only when they have been faithful to God. They are the people who belong to God. But now they're trying to say, how can we be more like everyone else? How can we have a king like everyone else's king? So God hears that. And as often the times is when God judges us, he judges us by giving us what we ask for. And so he gives Israel exactly what they asked for, a people, a king like kings surrounding them, a king by the name of Saul. Now, now Saul, there's three things we learn about Saul when he's introduced to us in Samuel. First thing is that he's rich. Second thing is that he's tall. It says he's a head taller from, than everyone else. And the third thing is that he is good looking. It says there is no one as good looking in all of Israel. So he is this dashing leaderly figure. And we also realize as we watch him in action that he is decisive. He can be effective. There is this time when God's people in one city are besieged by the Philistines and Saul looks and he is angry. And he was plowing the fields and he immediately takes one of his oxen that he was plowing and he chops the oxen in pieces. And he sends one piece to each tribe and says, this is what will happen to you unless you fight with me fairly effective persuasion. He gets 300,000 people all coming. They storm the Philistine city. I mean, the Philistine siege. The Philistines are routed. Great leader. The people are excited. They, they have leadership. But the problem is he is truly a leader like the leader of all the other nations. And we start seeing flaws coming out in his character. Again and again, when obedience to God stands in the way of what he thinks he needs, obedience fails. So there's a time that he is instructed, if you are going, to, before you fight, before you lead the army, wait for Samuel to sacrifice. And Saul can't do that. Saul's like, I'm, I'm out of time. The people are waiting. So he sacrifices instead of waiting for Samuel. It's disobedience. Another time after he's conquered a city, he is told you need to wipe out that city completely. No possession should be left over. But it's like, that's a waste. There's all these great cows and sheep. And so he holds on to them because it doesn't make sense to him. Again, obedience fails because it doesn't seem to serve his interests. And so what we see again and again in the reign of Saul is someone who serves God only insofar as it makes sense to him, as it is useful to him. God is for him a means to power. And so he's no better than the people who were before him. God is just like magic. He's just someone that he needs to get what he wants. And just like with his people, we see Saul meeting failure. Over time, we see him being judged, him experiencing all sorts of bad things happening because he is this kind of king. And so what this portion of Samuel is supposed to teach us is that we don't want a king 
like all the other nations have. The leadership of this world ultimately is a leadership that leads to failure. Now before we're too hard on the people of Israel, we should recognize that we're still learning that lesson. How often do you see in Christian circles celebrity pastors who demonstrate exactly the same things that are looked on highly by the world around us? How often do we see charisma prized over character? How often do we see confidence and success prized over humility and faithfulness? We're susceptible to the same confusion that Israel has, but what we learn is that we don't want a leader like all the other nations have. What we need is a leader that is of God's own choosing. And that's what we see in chapter 3. See, even as God gives Israel what he wants, he's also gracious and he has better plans. And so he sends Samuel saying, okay, Saul is reigning, but I have a different king, one of my own choosing. This is time for him. I want you to anoint someone. Now, just so you know, this anointing is an important thing to, for someone to be the anointed one. And by the way, that word anointed one in Hebrew is Messiah. In, in Greek, it's Christ. For someone to be the anointed one, the Christ, is for someone to be God's own chosen leader. So God sends Samuel and he says, I want you to find my anointed one, my Christ. Go to the town of Bethlehem. So he sends him to Bethlehem. He meets a man by the name of Jesse. And he sees Jesse's eldest son. And Jesse's eldest son is tall and good looking. And Samuel's like, that's the guy. But God's like, you are still making the same mistake. You were looking on outward appearances. But that's not how I judge. I judge by what I see within. Next brother, not the guy. The next brother, not the guy. The next brother. Finally, this young kid comes in, smelly from herding sheep. And God says, there he is. And so Samuel anoints David as the Christ. And the spirit rushes upon David, and he is empowered to be God's appointed chosen king. And I think the question that we're meant to ask when this happens is why? What is it about him? Why, when God says, that's the one, what does he see that makes him the king of God's own choosing? And as we follow the story throughout of David's life, especially early on, we see a couple of really important things. We see an obedient and fearless faith, and we see a profound love for God. I mean, there's this obedient faith. When Saul finds out about David having been anointed, he feels threatened, he is angry, and he basically devotes the rest of his life to trying to destroy David. And so David has to flee, and he gathers this, this kind of ragtag band of criminals around him who will support him and, and give him strength. And they're fleeing. They're moving from one place to another. And there's this one time when they find themselves right next to Saul when Saul is sleeping. In fact, David is able to walk right into camp. And in that moment, one of his assistants says, you know, you can just kill him right now. And if you do, your problem is over. He will no longer be chasing you. You will be the clear king. But David says, I can't do that. Because God chose Saul to be king for a time. And for me to, to kill him would be wrong, even though it would make things easier. 
And that's the pattern we see with David. He chooses obedience to God over what makes things easier because he trusts in God. Now, this obedience is not this conservative obedience. It's a fearless obedience. Time after time, we see David just throwing himself into danger because he believes that God will take care of him. I mean, the supreme example is the one we most know, the one that we learned as a kid if we grew up in Sunday school. There's the great story of Goliath who is taunting the people of Israel, and everyone is quaking in their boots, and David hears that, and he is so annoyed because God is being criticized. And so he comes at him, and Goliath sneers at him, and is like, I am going to feed your flesh to the birds, is what he says. And David's like, you have only a sword. I've got God. You're toast. That's, you know, my paraphrase, but that's pretty much what he says. And we know what happens. He is fearless. And why? Because he knows he has God. His faith leads him to obedience, and it leads him to fearlessness. And again and again, he leads his people into things that seem risky. And again and again, he meets success because he trusts in the power of his God. And at the same time as he trusts, we see this profound love in 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 the chapter that's right before the one that we read at the beginning of our our service, David has enjoyed success for a while. He has conquered the great city, Jerusalem, and the people are enjoying prosperity. And he says it's time for God's ark to come to Jerusalem and have a resting place. And when the ark finally gets into Jerusalem, it says David dances. I mean, dancing is a way of just physically expressing joy in a way unlike any other. And it says he dances with all of his might. He dances so much that he embarrasses his wife. who's like, this is just not appropriate. Because he loves God. And he is overjoyed that his God is now in the city. He is a man who has a faith that is obedient and faithless and a love that is profound. And this is what separates him from Saul and all other kings. Saul sees God as a means to power. David sees whatever power he's been given as a way of serving God. And therein lies the difference. Now we might ask, so, okay, I understand why that makes him a better person, but why does that necessarily make him a better leader? Well, let me ask you this. What would you rather have? Someone who holds to his principles only as long as it is in his interest? Or someone who is willing to give everything, even his life, to do what is just and what is good? How often do we see leaders seeming to hold something until suddenly it doesn't work for them anymore and they cast it off? Which would you rather have? Or would you rather have someone who is insecure in his power, and so he is constantly trying to protect his power and gather it and gain it, and his power is everything, or someone who is fearless because he already knows he has all that he needs and is able to lead his people into doing difficult and amazing things because he knows he doesn't have to worry about anything to lose. What would you rather have as a leader? See, what we need, what the world needs, is a leader of God's own choosing. That's what the story of David is is meant to show us. That's what this whole passage is meant to show us. So let's get back to 2 Samuel 7 because here is the climax. This is the culmination of all that this has led to. Where David now enjoying this prosperity, this enthronement as the king, 
is wanting to show his love for God in a very tangible way by making this house. We've already recognized and visited what God says. Like, that's not your job, David. I will, your son will eventually make me a house. But I'm going to bless you. I am going to give you and your people rest so that they no longer need to be afraid. I'm going to give your people glory so that all the world might see the greatness of your nation. I'm going to give your people an intimate relationship, a father-son relationship. I am going to give you Eden back. That's what the promises of 2 Samuel is saying. All that was lost will be restored. That is my purpose for you. And here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it through a leader. I'm going to do it actually through your son, someone who will be like you, except better. Someone who will have faith in me, someone who will love me even more than you do. He will be the Christ, the anointed one. And he will be my son. And through him, I will establish a kingdom unlike any others. Now, if you lived in the time of David or even a little bit after and you are aware of this great moment of promise, this great promise of blessing, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Solomon is the person that God was talking about. Because Solomon is the son of David. And there is this moment in Solomon's reign that everything seems to come together. And we'll talk about this more next week. There is this wisdom, this beauty, this glory, this success. The temple is made. There's intimacy. And it seems like here is exactly what God said. And then it doesn't last. It is a taste. It's a taste of what is to come. But it is only a taste. Because just like David, and we haven't talked about the whole story of David, just like David is clearly shown to be sinful, so also is Solomon. And more and more in his years of reign, we see him choosing his own desire over obedience to God and failing. And generation after generation in the story of Israel, we see failure until they are met with the greatest failure where they lose the temple, they lose the city, they lose their place, and they are forced to go into exile. And so by that time, by 587 BC, you have people who are asking, how long? They're still waiting for the Christ, for the Son of God, who is the Son of David, who will bring the kingdom that is promised. Many centuries later, there is this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples there on the town of Caesarea Philippi, a town that is actually named for a leader, the leader Caesar. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who of course is oftentimes the voice of the disciples, says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus essentially says, you are right. And I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't even be able to prevail against it. And Jesus is saying, I am that leader. 
I am the leader that God promised. I am the, I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. And I'm not just a son of God. I am the son of God. I am the one who will redeem this world and make a kingdom that will have no end. Jesus is God's chosen leader that the world needs. Perhaps I wonder, as we keep on talking about leaders this morning, if in your mind you have been thinking about the whole election process. I mean, that's just so much in the air right now, isn't it? And for many of us, so discouraging. And I've been very intentional in not actually speaking to that here for a couple of reasons. One of them is that it is not a simple line that we can draw from First and Second Samuel to the presidential election of how we should vote. It is not as simple of a question of asking which one is more of a Christian than the other. That, that's not really how we do it. Yes, there are things here that I think can guide us as we're trying to think through how we should vote, but it's not a simple way of seeing it. But there's a deeper and more important reason that I don't want to spend time too much thinking about the election because I think we have been thinking too much about the election. And here is the reality. Whoever is elected president is not your leader. Yes, he's the leader of this country, and whoever it is, we should be praying for that person, but he is not our leader. And this country is not our leader kingdom. Yes, we live in it and should be seeking to serve it, but it is not our kingdom, and it is not where our hope is found. We have a different king who is the leader of God's own choosing, and he has built a church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. And as we follow Christ Jesus, he rules in us. He conquers sin. He conquers doubt. He makes us into the people we were created to be. And he rules through us as we go into our workplaces and seek to honor him in the way that we love, in the way that we show integrity. As we seek to be parents who speak truth and kindness and love to our kids, Jesus is ruling. And when he returns... We, his people, will rest from suffering. And God will dwell among us. And his kingdom will have no end. He is our appointed leader. And he is the one in whom we truly have hope. You know, there's this moment uh, when David is finally getting enthroned and chosen by all of Israel where representatives from the tribes of Israel say, you are now bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And what they're doing is they're expressing allegiance. In essence, they're saying, you are our head. We are your body. The decisions you make will be decisions for us. Your prosperity will be our prosperity. You know, I can't think of a better definition of what a Christian is than someone who says that to our appointed leader. Jesus, you are bone of our bones, you are flesh of our flesh, you are our head, and we are your body. Whatever decision you make for us as our leader, we will go, and your prosperity and your blessing will be ours. Is that a decision that you have come to? Are you someone who has said to Christ, you are my leader, whatever that means? The table before us, 
is in some ways a table of allegiance. Our king holds this meal before us, and he declares to us, I am your leader. Whoever eats and drinks is saying, yes, Lord, you are. We receive your leadership. We receive your body. We receive your blood. You are our king. As we prepare ourselves for that, let's, let's take a moment. Each of us, whenever we confess week after week as a church, what we are doing is essentially bowing our knee to our Lord and saying once again, Lord Jesus, you are my leader. I know I have not been faithful, but I know you call me to repent, and I'm coming to repent because you are my king. And we do this because we know we have a forgiving king. So let's spend a couple of minutes bowing our hearts before Christ, declaring him once again to be king, confessing our sins as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's silently pray together. Lord God, you are our God, and you know our need. Father, we thank you that you have given us not just any leader, but that you have given us your son. Lord, you have given us someone who has trusted you in full obedience even to death and loves you without limits. Lord, Jesus is, is worthy of our every breath, our every obedience. He is worthy of our trust. And so we confess, Lord, that we have failed to be the people that we are called to be. Lord, you know how we have doubted. You know how we have turned inward and trusted ourselves over Christ at times. And we ask for your forgiveness. Father, thank you that that's not the only part of the story. We thank you that your spirit is at work in us, teaching us more and more how Jesus is our king and giving us faith. And we ask that more and more that you would reshape us, renew us, giving us deeper and deeper allegiance to our king, Christ Jesus, that we might be his faithful people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel from a very familiar passage in Luke. And the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hear the good news. In Jesus Christ, the son of David, you are forgiven, and he has saved you from your sins. Thanks be to God.